Chapter Twenty Six of Deerbrook. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Deerbrook by Harriet Martineau. Chapter Twenty Six. Disclosures. The whole village seemed relieved by the departure of the Rollins. Mrs. Gray, who had always been refused admission to her old friend on one pretense or another, was joyfully welcomed by Phoebe, and was plunged into all the delights of neighborly chat before the clock struck twelve. On the very first morning, Fanny and Mary Gray voluntarily offered to go to Miss Young, now that they were her only pupils, to save her the trouble of the walk to the schoolroom. This was a great relief to Maria, and her little parlor held the three very nicely and when the girls had sufficiently admired the screen over again, their father's profile, the planets, and the dargle they settled quite as well as at home. There was still a corner left for Cousin Margaret, when she chose to come with her German books, or her work, and her useful remarks on what they were doing. No immediate consequences had happened to Maria from her plain dealing with Mr. Rowland, and she was quite ready to enjoy the three months of freedom without looking too anxiously towards the end of them. The very gardener at the Rollins seemed to bestir himself with unusual alacrity to put the garden into spring trim, and the cook and housemaid might be seen over the hedge, walking in arm in arm on the gravel walks, smelling at the mezzeron, and admiring Miss Anna's border of yellow crocuses, as the gardener said, as much as if they had been fine plants out of a conservatory. The birds themselves seemed to begin their twittering in the trees, and the cows their lowering in the meadow. From the hour that Mrs. Rowland went away, in other words, there were many whom that event left free and at ease to observe the harmonies of nature, who were usually compelled to observe only the lady and the discords of her household. It was only the second day after the departure of the family that Margaret took her seat in the offered corner of Maria's parlor. She laid down her book and took up her work. When the question arose, which was probably interested all intelligent schoolgirls for many a year, what made so many Athenians so many that there must have been some wise and good men among them treat such a person as Socrates in the way they did? Margaret was quite occupied in admiring the sort of Socratic method with which Maria drew out from the minds of her pupils. Some of the difficult philosophy of opinion, and the liberality with which she allowed for the distress of heathen moralists, at having the sanction of custom broken up. Margaret was thus quite occupied with the delight of seeing a great subject skillfully let down into young minds, and the others were no less busy with the subject itself, when Mary started, and said it made her jump to see Sidney bring Fairy close up to the window. Fanny imperiously bade her mind what she was about, and let Sidney alone. But yet, in a minute or two, Fanny's own eyes were detected, wandering into the yard, where Sidney still remained. "'He is getting fairy shod,' she said in a soliquisting tone. Everyone laughed. The idea of shoeing a fairy was so ridiculous, and some witticisms about Bottom the Weaver, and his ass's head were sported. It was evident that Socrates had no more chance this day, and Maria changed the subject. Sidney looks very much as if he wanted to come in, observed Mary. Sidney did particularly wish to come in, but he saw that Cousin Margaret was there, and he had felt an unconquerable awe of Cousin Margaret ever since the day of his laying her over the ice. So he stood irresolutely watching, as nail after nail was driven into Fairy's hoof, casting glances every minute at the window. 
"'Shall I see what he wants?' asked Margaret, perceiving that lessons would not go on till Sidney had got out what he wished to say. "'May I open the window for a moment, Maria, to speak to him?' "'What do you think?' cried Sidney, taking instant advantage of the movement, and carrying off his awkwardness by whipping the window-sill while he spoke. "'What do you think?' Mr. Enderby has come by the coach this morning. I saw him myself, and you might have met our Ben carrying his portmanteau home from where he was put down half an hour ago. We'll have rare sport if he stays as long as he did last summer. I do believe, he continued, leaning into the room and speaking with the torch of his mother's mystery. He would have come long since if Mrs. Rowland had not been here. I wish she had taken herself off two months ago, and then I might have had a run with the Harriers with him, as he promised I should. Now you have said just a little too much, Sidney. So you may go, said Maria. Shut down the window, will you? It was well for Margaret that there was the recess of the window to lean in. There she stood, not speaking a word. It was not in nature for Maria to refrain from casting a glance at her, which glance grew into a look of intelligence. "'You do not quite wink as Mamma does,' observed Fanny. "'But I know very well what you mean, Miss Young. "'So people always fancy when they observe upon nothing, "'or upon what they know nothing about, Fanny. "'But I thought you were convinced, some time ago, "'that you should not watch people's countenances "'to find out what they are thinking any more than. "'I should read a letter they are writing,' interrupted Fanny. "'Well, I beg your pardon, Miss Young, but I really thought I saw you looking at Cousin Margaret's face. However, I dare say everybody supposes the same, that Mr. Enderby would not have been here now if Mrs. Rowland had not gone away. "'You need not mind Mary and me, Miss Young. You know we hear all about Mrs. Rowland at home. I know you are apt to fancy that you understand all about Mrs. Rowland, my dear, but perhaps Mrs. Rowland herself might happen to differ from you.' If she could look into your mind, it is for you to settle with yourself, whether you think she would be satisfied that you have done by her as you would have her do by you. This is your own affair, Fanny. So now, without any one trying to see in your face what you think of yourself, we will go to our business. The scratching of pens in the exercise books and the turning over of the dictionary now proceeded for some time in profound silence, in the midst of which Margaret stole back to her corner. "'There goes twelve, softly exclaimed Mary. "'Mama said we might go with her to call at Cousin Hester's. "'If we were home and ready by half-past twelve, we shall not have nearly done, Miss Young.' Miss Young did not take the hint. She only said, "'Is your mamma going to call on Mrs. Hope?' Then, Margaret, do not let us detain you here. You will wish to be at home, I am sure. Never, as Maria supposed, had Margaret more impatiently desired to be at home. Though accustomed to go in and out of Maria's abode, with or without reason assigned, she had not now ventured to move, though the little room felt like a prison. An awkward consciousness had fixed her to her seat. Now, however, she made haste to depart, promising to visit her friend again very soon. The little girls wanted her to arrange to come every morning and stay all the time of lessons, but Margaret declined making any such engagement. As she went home, she scarcely raised her eyes for fear of seeing him, and yet she lingered for an instant at her brother's door. From a feeling of disappointment at having met no one she knew, she had fully and undoubtedly intended to tell Hester of Philip's arrival, but when she had taken off her bonnet, 
and settled herself beside her sister in the drawing-room, she found that it was quite impossible to open the subject. While she was meditating upon this, the entrance of the greys seemed to settle the matter. She supposed they would make the disclosure for her, but she soon perceived that they had not heard the news. Mrs. Gray went on quoting Mrs. Enderby and Phoebe, and Sophia remarked on the forsaken condition of the old lady, in a way which was quite incompatible with any knowledge of the new aspect which affairs had assumed this morning. It was a great relief to Margaret to be spared the discussion of a fact on which so much was to be said. But, lo, in the midst of a flow of talk about fomentations, and the best kind of nightlight for a sick-room, there was a knock at the door, every stroke of which was recognized to a certainty by Margaret, while the other ladies were pushing back their chairs to break up the appearance of a gossip and make room for another party of visitors. Margaret was wholly occupied with contriving to sit upright, notwithstanding the dimness that came over her sight. It was he. He entered the room quickly, looked taller than ever, as Sophia thought to herself, and more than ever like a polished count, now that his blue great coat was buttoned up to the chin. He stopped for half a moment on seeing ladies in cloaks and bonnets, and then came forward and shook hands with everybody. Hester observed that he looked full at Margaret as she held out his hand to her, but Margaret did not see this, for though she commanded herself wonderfully, she could not meet his eye, of course. He was asked when he arrived. He had to answer the question, and also the remarks which were made on the length of his absence, and on the expectations of everybody in Deerbrook, that he would have visited the old place at Christmas, or New Year. He was then pitied on account of the state of his mother's health. To this he made no reply whatever, but when Mrs. Gray inquired how he found Mrs. Enderby, he briefly, somewhat abruptly, answered that he thought her very ill. It was equally impossible for Margaret to sit totally silent while all this was going on, and to address herself to him. She therefore kept some conversation with Sophia on the greenhouse, and the fate of the evergreens in the shrubbery, in consequence of the severity of the frost in January, which Larestinus had been lost, and how the Arbutus had suffered, and how long it would be before the lowers on the grass would grow up to their former size and beauty, while Sophia was telling that the greenhouse occupied a great deal of time, and that she had therefore turned over her interest in it to Sydney, and begged the little girls to divide her garden between them. Mr. Enderby had seen to take Hester into the window, and after remarking upon the snowdrops beneath, to speak privately to her. Margaret was afraid Mrs. Gray would take the hint and go away. Her presence now appeared a sort of protection, which Margaret exerted herself to retain, by not allowing the conversation to flag. She need not have feared Mrs. Gray was turning over in the mind how she might best introduce her congratulations on Mr. Enderby's engagement, and her inquiries after Miss Bruce's welfare, topics on which she conceived that good manners required her to enter. Meantime, Mr. Enderby had been saying to Hester, you will excuse the offer of my good wishes on your settlement here being briefly and hastily made, but I am at this moment in great anxiety. Is Hope at home? No, he is some miles off in the country. Then I must charge you with a message to him. I think my mother very ill, and I find it is some time since Hope has seen her. Will you beg him to come to her without loss of time when he returns? Certainly. 
He will be home within two or three hours, I have no doubt. Ask him whether he will not prescribe a visit from you to my mother. It will do her good, I am confident. You know she is all alone now with her maid. I am aware of that. It is not from negligence or disinclination, I assure you, that we have seen so little of Mrs. Enderby for some time past. I know it, I know it, said he, shaking his head. Then, after a pause, shall you be at home this evening? Yes. And alone? Yes. Will you come? Thank you. I will come in for an hour. I shall hear Hope's report of my mother, and between ourselves I want a few words with your sister. Can you manage this for me? No doubt. He was gone in another moment, with a bow to the whole party. Gone, cried Mrs. Gray, and I have not said a word to him about his engagement and Miss Bruce. How very odd he must think us, Sophia. There will be plenty of time for all we have to say, observed Hester. He is so uneasy about his mother, I see, that he will not leave her yet a while. Margaret was sure she perceived in her sister's beautiful eye and lit up subtle expression of amusement that they bore when a gay thought was in her mind, or when her neighbors were setting off in speculation on a wrong scent. But half the grace of one's good wishes is in their being offered readily, said Mrs. Gray. As I was saying to Sophia the other day, when we were considering whether Mr. Gray should not write to Mr. Enderby with our congratulations, we should not like to appear backward on such an occasion, for many reasons. Well now, my dears, one thing more, you must come to tea with us this evening. It will be a mild evening, I have no doubt, and I have sent to Miss Young to say that my sedan will bring her at six o'clock. We have quite set our hearts upon having you for a sociable evening. Thank you, said Hester. We would come with great pleasure, but that we are engaged. Engaged, my dear. Margaret has just told us that you have no engagement. So Margaret thought, but we are engaged. A friend of Mr. Hope's is coming to spend the evening, and I promised that we would be at home. Dear, said Sophia, and we had quite set our hearts upon your coming. Cannot you bring the gentleman with you, my dear? I am sure Mr. Gray will be happy to see any friend of Mr. Hope's. Thank you, but he is coming on business. Oh, well, but Margaret can be spared, surely. I suppose you must stay and make tea, my dear. It would not so. I know, for you to appear, to neglect your husband's country patience, particularly in the present state of affairs, but Margaret can come, surely. Sydney shall step for her a little before six. Oh, yes, said Sophia, Margaret can come. The gentlemen have no business with her, I suppose. Margaret was again puzzled with the fun that lurked in the eye and lip. She had been passive till now, but seeing Hester's determination that she should not go, she said very decidedly that she should much prefer coming some evening when her brother and sister need not be left behind. Mrs. Gray is not very well pleased, observed Margaret, when their visitors were gone. Could not you have been a little more explicit as to this gentleman, whoever he may be? I thought it better not to say more, said Hester. How unable to help stealing a glance at her sister. Our visitor is to be Mr. Enderby. He is so uneasy about his mother that my husband is to see her this afternoon, and Mr. Enderby offers to come in the evening to discuss her case. After a slight pause, Hester continued, Sophia was very positive about its being impossible that our visitor could have any business with you. Was not she? Oh, Hester, said Margaret imploringly, with her eyes full of tears. Well, well, said Hester, remembering how cruel this speech might appear to her sister. 
I ought not to speak to you from my own habitual disbelief of Mrs. Rowland's news. I will go away, dear, only just saying, first, that I like Philip's look very well. He does not seem happier than he ought to be, while his mother is so ill. Nor does he act as if he felt he had neglected us, his old friends. As my husband says, we must hear his own story before we judge him. When she left the room, Margaret could not have settled with herself whether there was most pain or pleasure in the prospect of this evening. Five minutes before, she had believed that she should spend it at the greys, should hear the monotonous hiss of the urn, which seemed to take up its song. Every time she went where it had left off last, should see Mrs. Gray's wings from behind it, should have the same sort of cake, cut by Sophia into pieces of exactly the same size, should hear Sidney told to be quiet, and the little girls to go to bed, should have to play Mrs. Gray's favorite waltz, and sing Mr. Gray's favorite song, and at last to refuse a glass of sherry three times over and come away after hearing much wonder expressed that the evening was gone already now instead of this there was to be the fear and constraint of philip's presence so unlike what that had ever been before no longer gay easy and delightful but all that was awkward no one would be sure of what the others were feeling or whether there was any sufficient reason for their mutual feelings being so changed who would find the conversation what could be talked about which would not bring one or another into collision with mrs rowland or miss bruce but yet there would be his presence and with it bliss there would be his very voice and something of his thoughts could not but come out she was better pleased than if his evening was to be spent anywhere else dinner passed she did not know how except that her brother thought mrs underby not materially worse than when he saw her last the tea-tray came and stood an hour, Mr. Hope being evidently restless and on the watch. He said at last that it would be better to get tea over before Enderby came, and Margaret repeated in her own mind that it was less awkward, and yet she was disappointed. The moment the table was cleared, his knock was heard. He would not have tea. He had been making his mother's tea, and had a cup with her, and now what was Hope's judgment on her state of health? The gentleman had scarcely entered upon the subject when a note was brought in for Margaret. Everything made her nervous, but the purport of this note was merely to ask for a book which she had promised to lend Mrs. Levitt, and she went to her room for it. She was vexed that the interruption had occurred now, and was heartily angry with herself, that she could command herself no better, and be no more like other people than she fancied she had been this day. There is Hester, thought she, looking nothing less than Mary and talking about whatever occurs as if nothing had happened since we met him last while i sit feeling like a fool with not a word to say and no courage to say it if i had i wonder whether i have always been as insignificant and dull as i have seen myself to be to-day i do not believe i ever thought about the matter before i wish i could forget it now notwithstanding her feeling of insignificance in the drawing-room however she was so impatient to be there again that her hands trembled with eagerness in doing up the parcel for mrs levitt when she re-entered the drawing-room philip was there alone standing by the fire margaret's first impulse was to retreat but her better judgment prevailed in time to intercept the act philip said mr and mrs hope have at my desire given me the opportunity of speaking to you alone you must not refuse to hear what I have to say, because it is necessary to the vindication of my honor, 
and it is also due to another person. Of course, Margaret sat down. She seemed to intend to speak, and Philip waited to hear her, but no words came, so he went on. You have been told, I find, that I have been for some time engaged to a lady who is now at Rome. Miss Bruce. How such a notion originated, we need not inquire. The truth is that I am but slightly acquainted with Miss Bruce, and that nothing has ever occurred which could warrant such a use of that lady's name. I heard nothing of this till to-day, and— Is it possible? breathed Margaret. I was shocked to hear of it from my poor mother— but infinitely more shocked, grieved to the very soul, to find that you, Margaret, believed it. How could we help it? It was your sister who told us. What does my sister know of me compared with you? I thought, I hoped, but I see now that I was presumptuous. I thought that you knew me enough, and cared for me enough to understand my mind, and trust my conduct through whatever you might hear of me from others. I have been deceived, I mean I have deceived myself, as to the relation in which we stand. I do not blame you, Margaret, that is. I will not, if I can help it, for what you have given credit to about me, but I did not think you would have mortified me so deeply. You are partly wrong now. You are unjust at this moment, replied Margaret, looking up with some spirit. I do not wish to speak of Mrs. Rowland, but remember, your mother never doubted what your sister said. The information was given in such a way as left almost an impossibility of disbelief. There was nothing to set against the most positive assurances, nothing from you, not a word to any of your old friends. And there was I, working away on a new and good plan of life, living for you, and counting the weeks and days between me and the time when I might come and show you what your power over me had enabled me to do. And you were all the while despising or forgetting me, allowing me no means of defending myself, yielding me up to dishonor with a mere shake of the head, as if I had been an acquaintance of two or three ball nights. It is clear that you knew my mind, no better than I now find I knew yours. What would you have had me do? asked Margaret with such voice as she had. I believe I had not thought of that, said Philip, half laughing. I only felt that you ought to have trusted me, that you must have known that I loved neither Miss Bruce nor any one but you, and that I could not be engaged to any one while I loved you. Tell me at once, Margaret, did I not deserve this much from you? You did, said Margaret distinctly, but there is another way of viewing the whole, which does not seem to have occurred to you. I have been to blame, perhaps, but if you had thought of the other possibility. What other? Oh, do speak plainly. I must, at such a time as this, if I could not think you guilty, I might fancy myself to have been mistaken. And did you fancy so? Did you suppose I neither loved you nor meant you to think that I did? I did conclude myself mistaken. Oh, Margaret, I should say, if I dared, that such a thought, such humility, such generosity, could come of nothing but love. Margaret made no reply. They understood one another too completely for words. Even in the first gush of joy, there was intense bitterness in the thought of what Margaret must have suffered, and Philip vowed, in the bottom of his soul, that his whole life should be devoted to make her forget it. He could have cursed his sister with equal energy. There was no end to what had to be said. Philip was impatient to tell what he had been doing, and the reasons of the whole of his conduct. Margaret's views had become his own as to the desultoriness of his life, he had hitherto led. He had applied himself diligently to the study of the law, 
intending to prove to himself and to her that he was capable of toil and of a steady aim at an object in life before he asked her to decide what their relation to each other was henceforth to be surely said he you might have discovered this much from my letters to my mother and how were we to know what was in your letters to your mother do you mean that you have not read or heard them all this time not a word for these three months we have scarcely seen her for many weeks past and then she merely showed us what long letters you wrote her and they were all written for you she told me the last time i was here that she could keep nothing from you and relying upon her words i have supposed this to be a medium of communication between us throughout i could have no other you know when did my mother leave off reading my letters to you from the week you went away last mrs rowland came in while we were in the midst of one and the consequence was that you have been in the dark about me ever since you saw that i did write yes i have seen most of the postmarks and the interiors upside down but mrs rowland was always there or else phoebe and have you really known nothing about me whatever little george told me that you had lessons to learn very hard and very long and if possible more difficult than this and did not you see then that i was acting upon your views i suppose miss bruce might have had them first miss bruce he cried in a tone of annoyance i knew nothing of miss bruce's views on any subject i cannot conceive how my sister got such a notion into her head while she selected her margaret was going to mention the sisterly affection which had long subsisted between miss bruce and mrs rowland according to the letter but it occurred to her that it was just possible that philip might not be altogether so indifferent to miss bruce as miss bruce was to him and this thought sealed her lips i wonder whether rowland believed it all the time said philip and hope it was unworthy of hope's judgment of his faith to view the case so wrongly i am glad you are beginning to be angry with somebody else said margaret your wrath seemed all to be for me but your old friends even to your mother appear to have had no doubt about the matter there is an excuse for them which i thought you had not i am an altered man margaret you cannot conceive how altered since i began to know you they judged of me by what i was once we will not say how lately i assure you i do not forget the accounts you used to give of yourself what accounts of how you found life pleasant enough without philosophy and without anything to do and otherwise sayings of the kind it is by such things that those who knew me long ago have judged me lately a retribution which i ought not to complain of if they believe me fickle idle selfish it is all fair oh margaret men know nothing of morals till they know woman are you serious i am solemnly persuaded of it happy they who grow up beside mothers and sisters whom they can revere but for this almost all men would be without earnestness of heart without a moral purpose without generosity while they are all the while talking of honor it was so with me before i knew you i am feeble enough and selfish enough yet god knows but i hope still to prove that you have made a man of me out of a light selfish but what right have i you may think to ask you to rely upon me when i have so lately been what i tell you i did not mean to ask you yet this very morning nothing could be further from my intentions i do not know how long i should have waited before i should have dared my sister has rendered me inestimable service against all the mischief she did me i thank her ah margaret you smile 
Margaret again smiled. The smile owned that she was thinking the same thing about obligations to Mrs. Rowland. "'Whatever you might have said to me this evening,' continued Philip, "'if your regard for me has proved to me to have been quite overthrown, "'if you had continued to despise me, as you must have done at times, "'I should still have blessed you all my life. "'I should have worshipped you as the being who opened a new world to me. "'You lifted me out of a life of trifling.' of trifling which I thought very elegant at the time, trifling with my own time and faculties, trifling with something more serious still, I fear, with their feelings. As far as I remember, I thought all this manly and refined enough, and but for you, I should have thought so still. You early opened my eyes to all the meanness and gross selfishness of such a life, and if you were never to let me see you again, I believe I could not fall back into the delusion but if you will be the guide of my life. Margaret sighed deeply, even at this moment of vital happiness. Her thoughts rested on her sister. She remembered what Hester's anticipations had been, in prospect of having Edward for the guide of her life. I frighten you, I see, said Philip, with my confessions. But, be the consequences what they may, I must speak, Margaret. If you despise me, I must do you the justice, and give myself the consolation of acknowledging what I have been, and what I owe to you. It is not that, said Margaret. Let the past go, let it be forgotten, in reaching forward to better things. But do not let us be confident about the future. I have seen too much of that. We must not provide for disappointment. Let us leave it till it comes, surely, she added with a gentle smile. We have enough for the present. I cannot look forward yet. "'How you must have suffered!' cried Philip, in a tone of grief. "'You have lost some of your confidence, love. "'You did not cling to the present, and shrink from the future when... "'Oh, it is bitter, even now, to think, "'that while I was working on, in hope and resolution, "'you were suffering here, making it a duty to extinguish your regard for me, "'all the time, toiling to deserve it, "'and there was no one to set us right, "'and the whole world in league to divide us. "'That is all over now.' but not the consequences margaret they have shaken you but but they have made you no doubt and fear we have both changed philip we are older and i trust it will appear that we are wiser than we were yes older there are times in one's life when days do the work of years and our days have been of that kind you have discovered a new life and my wishes and expectations are much altered they may not be fewer or less bright but they are very different if they are pure from fears they are pure from fears at this moment i can fear nothing we have been brought together by the unquestionable providence which rules our lives and this is enough the present is all right and the future which is to come out of it will be all right in its i have no fear but i do not want to anticipate this hour with its satisfactions is all that i can bear notwithstanding this and philip's transport in learning it they did go back again and again into the past, and many a glance did they cast into the future. There was no end to their revelations of the circumstances of the last two months, and of the interior history which belonged to them. At last the burning out of one of the candles startled them into recollection of how long their conversation had lasted, and of the suspense in which Edward and Hester had not been kept. 
Enderby offered to go and tell them the fact which they must be anticipating, and after having agreed that no one else should know at present that Miss Bruce's name should be allowed to die out of Deerbrook speculations, for Mrs. Rowland's sake, before any other was put in its place, Philip left his Margaret and went into the breakfast-room, where his presence was not wholly unexpected. In five minutes Margaret heard the hall door shut, and in another moment her brother and sister came to her. Hester's face was all smiles and tears, her mind all tumult with the vivid recollection of her own first hours of happy, hopeful love, mingled with the griefs which always lay heavy within her, and with that warm attachment to her sister, with circumstances occasionally exalted into a passion. "'We ought to rejoice with nothing but joy, Margaret,' said she, "'but I cannot see how we are to spare you. I do not believe I can live without you.' Her husband started at this echo of the thoughts for which he was at the moment painfully rebuking himself. He had nothing to say, but gave his greeting in a brotherly kiss, like that which he had offered on his marriage with her sister, and on his entrance upon his home. "'How quiet! How very quiet she is!' exclaimed Hester, and Margaret left the room. After a few words on the events of the evening, and a calm good night, "'I hope it is all right. I hope she is quite satisfied.' satisfied is the word said her husband people are quiet when they are relieved calm when they are satisfied people like margaret it is only great minds i believe which feel real satisfaction hester gave him pain by a deep sigh she was thinking how seldom and for how short a time she had ever felt real satisfaction and how often and for how long she asked do great minds find themselves in that heaven by the blessing of god not seldom i trust replied he though not so often as by obeying their nature they might intellectual satisfaction is perhaps not for this world except in a few of the inspired hours of the newtons and the bacons who are sent to teach what the human intellect is but as often as a great mind meets with full moral sympathy as often as it is loved in return for love as often as it confides itself unreservedly to the good power which besowed its existence and appointed all its attributes i imagine it must repose in satisfaction then satisfaction ought to be no new feeling to margaret said hester she always loves every one she meets with sympathy wherever she turns and i believe she has faith enough for a martyr without knowing it ought not she must not she have often felt real satisfaction yes "'I wonder you dole out your words so sparingly about such a being as Margaret,' said Hester, resentfully. "'I can tell you, Edward, though you take so coolly the privilege of having such a one so nearly connected with you, you might search the world in vain for her equal. You little know the wealth of her heart and soul, Edward. I ask you whether she does not deserve to feel full satisfaction of conscience and affections.' and you just answer yes with as much languor as if i had asked you whether the clock has struck eleven yet i can tell you this i have said in my own heart and just to morris for years that the happiest man of his generation will be he who has margaret for a wife and here you who ought to know this gave me a grudging yes in answer to the first question arising out of my reverence for margaret that i ever asked you you mistake me replied hope in a tone of gentleness which touched her very soul one's words may be restrained by reverence as well as by want of heart i regard margaret with a reverence which i should not have thought it necessary to put it into words for your conviction oh i am wrong as i always am cried hester you must forgive me again as you do far far too often but tell me edward 
ought not margaret's husband to be the happiest man living yes said edward with a smile will that do this time oh yes yes replied she the thought passing through her mind that whether or not her husband expected himself as a matter of course she thought not have asked a question to which she could not bear all possible answers even if he meant that margaret's husband might be a happier man than himself it was only too true as quick as lightning these thoughts passed through her mind and apparently without a pause she went on and now as to enderby is he worthy to be this happy husband does he deserve her mr hope did pause before he replied i think we had better dwell as little as we can on that point of the story not because i am afraid do not take fright and suppose i mean more than i say not because i am afraid but because we can do nothing discern nothing about it time must show what enderby is or rather what he has the power of becoming meanwhile the thing is settled they love and have promised and are happy let us shun all comparison of the one with the other of them and hope everything from him there will be some amusement said hester after smiling reverie in having the secret to ourselves for a time while all the rest of deerbrook is so busy with a different idea and expectation how will mrs rowland bear it mrs grey might have said that said hope laughing well but it is not true will it not be very amusing to see the circulation of stories about miss bruce given from the best authority and to have all manner of news told us about philip and to watch how mrs rowland will get out of the scrape she is in surely edward you are not above being amused with all this i shall be best pleased when it is all over i have lived some years longer than you in deerbrook and have had more time to get tired of its mysteries and mistakes for your comfort then it cannot be long before all is open and rightly understood we need only leave mrs rowland time to extricate herself i suppose i wonder how she will manage it we shall be taken by surprise with some clever device i dare say it is a pity so much ingenuity should be wasted on mischief End of chapter twenty six